So welcome you all to another episode of uh, Analytics Week Leadership Podcast. Today we have with us Mike Flowers. He's the Chief Analytics Officer at Enigma. So uh, to uh, give an introduction, so Mike is a Chief Analytics Officer at New York City tech startup Enigma and operational data management intelligence company and we'll go over what that really means uh, in a few minutes and where he leads data scientists assisting the development and deployment of decision support technologies to Fortune 500 clients uh, in compliance, manufacturing, banking, and finance. And uh, before that, uh, uh, Mike was an EIR uh, and the first MacArthur Urban Science Fellow at NYU Center of Urban Science and Progress. And prior to that, Mike served as uh, uh, served under Mayor Michael Bloomberg as New York City's first chief analytics officer, where he created first of its kind citywide analytics platform, and we will we'll spend some some time some sort of uh, coverage on that as well in our conversation. And prior to that, um, Mike was a counsel to the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee of Investigations for the 110th and 11th Congress, uh, leading bipartisan inquiries into global financial crisis of 2009. Um, money laundering by North Korean government in furtherance of its nuclear weapons program and international cooperation tax evasions. So, uh, and and very glorified resume, by the way, Mike. So definitely honored to have you on board. And I'm not sure I, how how much have I covered. Uh, so love to sort of spend, uh, love to have you spend some minutes on your your background and considering you have a strong legal background, what the hell are you doing in, in, in data analytics world? So love to have you spend some more minutes on what leads to what and and, and, and bring it to, to the present. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I ask that same question to myself recently, so um, you're not alone. Um, I'm sorry, I came to it sort of late in the game. I mean, um, professionally speaking, uh, I started my career uh as a uh, prosecutor uh, in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And, you know, for the bulk of my time there, I was uh, prosecuting, investigating and prosecuting street crime, you know. Um, everything ranging from somebody jumping a turnstile to get on the subway to homicide, right, and all the things in between. Um, a little bit later in the game, while I was, I mean, my tenure there wasn't that long. I was only there for about three and a half years, but... Uh, uh, later in the game, uh, once I had a bunch of jury trials under my belt, investigations, then I started getting into financial uh, crime investigations. Um, the Manhattan DA's office is just like any other local district attorney's office, right? Usually financial matters like that, of that scale, are handled at the federal level or the state level. Um, the reason Manhattan had such a robust practice in it is because it's Manhattan, right? Yeah. So local crime in Manhattan includes high-level financial fraud and, and shenanigans, right? Um, and it was also really, a lot of it had to do with the vision of uh, Robert Morgenthau, who was the very long-serving district attorney there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, so that I was lucky in that I had the opportunity to get some exposure to that, to that field, and it was fascinating to me. And financial crime, at the end of the day, is, you know, a crime of informational asymmetry. Hmm. Uh, you know, or the, the uh, illegal use of it, right, uh, for bad ends, for self-enrichment that's not allowed, right? Um, and for, you know, for personal reasons, um, my 
then girlfriend, now wife, who li was living in Washington, D.C., uh, working at the State Department, and one of us had to move, so, um, so it was me. Uh, and I went to work for a large law firm uh, here in Washington, uh, Williams and Connolly. Uh, really excellent, excellent outfit. Uh, again, mostly involved in regulatory uh, financial affairs, uh, defending clients facing investigations from outfits like, you know, the SEC and the CFTC, the alphabet soup of regulators in Washington, right? Um, you know, going from jury trials in Manhattan to uh, a, a law firm, no matter how excellent, it was an excellent law firm, was very jarring for me. Uh, I got bored very fast. Um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, and I won't even get into whether or not you know, with, with the judgment of history, it'll be on that. But you know, we invaded Iraq, right? <laughs> and so, um, I basically just went to a partner that I worked with and just begged him, you know, to get me out of here. I, you know, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm so bored. I'm going to, you know, kill myself, right? So, uh, and he had connections with uh, the administration, the, the Bush administration and set me up on an interview with somebody at the Department of Justice and they asked if I was interested in going over to work on Saddam's trial uh, and I, you know I leapt at it um, it's just you know that's a fascinating you know that's why anybody would get into criminal right, laws to right. investigate uh, and, and, and put to trial put to justice uh, an individual who was accused of genocide war, war crimes you know uh, and it was a fascinating experience of course when I got over there, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, <laughs> um, and it was not even close to it. I mean, you know, you had this horrible tragedy going on. Right. Um, there was incredible chaos. It was right at the height of uh, the insurgency. There are thousands of people dying in Baghdad every, every week, and, you know, we're trying to, in the midst of all that madness, build a courthouse, train judges, and get, you know, witnesses in and out of the green zone and dig up mass mm -hmm. graves analyze them and all that stuff, right? So, um, and, and, you know, and people who were affiliated with the with the trial were constantly being targeted for assassination, and I ended up being a uh, downrange client of a couple of intelligence agencies, um, not, you know, like personally, but in my position for what I was doing. Most of the time it was just simply like, how do I get my witnesses from over here to mm -hmm. here without getting killed? Or what's you know I need a synthesis of information as to which of the any of the three hundred potential mass grave sites to exhume. Now, exhumation in those circumstances, as you can imagine, you know the logistics of it were a nightmare. You have to get like a backhoe in, and you know I have to do it forensically. You don't know if there's mustard gas presence, so you have to have hazmat capacity, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we had some incredible professionals doing all that. But, you know, from my standpoint, I just, you know, was sort of as much a fly on the wall as I was an end user of the information. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to me to watch how these agencies were synthesizing all of these very, very different pieces of information, some uh, geo, some topographical, some human, um, some as rudimentary as just, you know, population counts based on like turns, like very similar to turnstile counts of a stadium for how many people were moving through different parts of the city at any given time, and then were giving us an information product, uh, actionable insight, if you will, on how to get that, those witnesses from A to B without right. dying, wow. right? 
Um, again, I want to stress, I had nothing to do with the generation of that product. I was a major beneficiary of that product. And I came away from that um, just fascinated with the fact that they were able to provide so, such valuable information to us and how they were going about doing it. So when I left Iraq, um, I spent about two, 21 months on the ground in Baghdad. And I came back in December of, or January actually, January of 2007. And um, at that point I was, you know, confronted with the challenge of like, okay, what do I do now? That was, you know, very intense experience. <laughs> Everything is going to seem kind of boring at this point, right? Um, and again, I, you know, all this, all this was accidental. Like, none of this, hmm. you can't, I didn't plan any of this, right? It just sort of, I just followed what interest me, interested me and ended up where I ended up, right? Um, so then I end up going to the Hill, and that's where I went to the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. And it was a really nifty little uh, job. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Congressional investigations are, they, they, their purpose is to drive legislation, right? Hmm. And that particular subcommittee is a very powerful investigative uh, subcommittee because they have their own subpoena power, unlike every other investigative subcommittee on the Hill who has to go to the, to the main uh, committee chairs and get subpoenas issued that way. PSI had a long tradition of, um, of, of, of robustly exercising its uh, investigative authority by virtue of its name, I guess, right? But it also had a lot to do with who was running it, right? There was, it was yeah. headed at the time by Senator Levin uh, from Michigan, and he was just, I just have a lot of respect for him and his staff. Um, he was on the Democratic side, I was on the Republican side. But the tradition on that subcommittee, because it had been run by McCarthy uh, at one point, and McCarthy had abused the crap out of it, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, to, go, to go on that communist witch hunt, um, they changed the rules, and there was a very strong tradition of bipartisanship on that committee, so that we worked very closely together. Uh, and during the course of that, I, you know, we became extremely good friends. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a great deal of respect for um, their investigative uh, uh, integrity uh, and and professionalism, and just you know, passion for the work. Um, and Levin was very, very interested in financial regulation. Uh, and financial crimes. I mean, he's, he's sort of a big, I'm standing up for the little guy kind of guy. And he, I think, just took extreme offense at some of the uh, more egregious abuses of the financial system, right? Um, we ended up taking very interesting tax on it. You know, Carl's people came at it from, we need to regulate these, you know, these institutions more aggressively. From my side of things, I was like, yes, I, I, I don't disagree that these, these incidents were horrifying. We all can agree on that. We'll document it. But on my end, I also feel like that the government botched it too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there was, you know, the SEC and the CFTC and, you know, the IRS and, and all of those agencies that had responsibility to oversee the integrity of the system fell down on the job, in my view, right? Mm -hmm. And from that, that wasn't in conflict with anything what Carl was doing. It actually was highly complementary um, so that we could propose really like a holistic set of reforms out of that in, um, factual nucleus, if that makes any sense. And everybody, you know, we just, I just really liked working with those guys. Um, it was towards the tail end of that that I got a call from a former colleague of mine in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office who was then working for Mayor Bloomberg, and they were interested in starting a financial intelligence 
unit um, in response to you know the financial crisis. So the financial crisis was just such a major shock to many systems, and you know especially in New York, which the, the financial uh, industry was under incredible attack. It also, and, and you know, rightly so in many ways. But on the other hand, they also generate a significant uh, amount of tax revenue for the city for the operations of the city of New York. So, this, so Mayor Bloomberg's idea was to see if we, as a city, could get involved and get ahead of some of these more egregious abuses because they were occurring within our borders. Hmm. And what to do about that? Um, so I and he hadn't. It was no more broad than that. The remit, right? When they came to me. So when I first took a look at it, I thought, I don't think this makes much sense hmm. because you have a wide variety of actors in that space. You have federal actors, the FBI, um, the U.S. Attorney's offices, those other regulatory bodies, the Fed, right? Um, at the state level, you have the State Attorney General's office, you have the state insurance and banking regulator, a number of other actors, and, and then at the city level, you have five district attorney's offices uh, for each of the boroughs, separately elected, uh, and NYPD, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I okay, it makes no sense to me to add yet another acronym to that alphabet soup of tribes that, you know, were clearly always scrapping with each other to get um, cases. Investigators, and I can say this is one of them, they're just a very tribal group of people, um, and they, they have intense rivalries with one another. They're very turfy. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that, and I don't say that, you know, giving that any kind of normative judgment. It's just it is what it is, right? Mm. Um, and so I, can't, I went back to Bloomberg, and I basically said, listen, I, you know, I'm not sure that what you're talking about would work. You'd spend a lot of money uh, and probably end up with just, you know, a lot of noise and nothing really to show for it uh, over the next four years. But what I think you could do, right, and this would be very, uh, very helpful, is leverage the greatest asset you've got on behalf of this effort more effectively. And that asset was, was data. New York City, during, when I left in, in 2003, between the time I left in 2003, which was the beginning of the Bloomberg administration, towards the time mm -hmm. when I came back and at the end of 2009, that had been eight years of Mike Bloomberg, right? Hmm. Close to eight years. Um, my, Bloomberg had basically digitized the city. So all of the agencies that generate regulatory information about their jobs, fire department, police department, sanitation department, uh, finance, et cetera, et cetera, had all moved to digital. So okay. all of those records that had been paper were now um, locked up in files uh, in computers and hard drives, you know, et cetera. Wildly different systems, okay? Right. <laughs> you know, there is no... New York City government is, is an ecosystem. It's not a monolithic entity, right? So, um, but, but it, that presented to me an opportunity because I remember as a prosecutor, one of the first things you do when you get a case, especially financial matters, you collect all the information you can about the individuals you're taking a look at, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and the properties that they've touched and all that other stuff. And that meant usually going over to this warehouse uh, in Brooklyn and pulling boxes <laughs> off of a bunch of shelves that were, that looked a lot like, you know, that last scene in the first Indiana Jones movie when they were on, like, the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> right? it's like, it was just like that, you know? <laughs> wow. And, you know, but now that was all at your fingertips, nice. ostensibly. 
Right. right? Potentially, it was at your fingertips. Just nobody had ever taken that next step. So what I said to Bloomberg was like, look, let's just do the same thing you've done for Bloomberg LP. Bloomberg LP simply synthesizes information and makes it readily available for a specific group that uses it to make its decisions, i.e., you know, traders. And, and, right. Uh, let's do the same thing for city government, man, you know, <laughs> with an eye towards, you know, at first, financial crime. So I set about, you know, basically doing about six months of reconnaissance in the city, uh, and that meant, you know, what's our data schema is. Um, and then went out, spent tremendous amounts of time in the field with the district attorney's offices and, and at the state and the state and the federal actors as well, getting to know them, what are their challenges, what are they all, what's what's the unifying thing that they're all upset about and how receptive mm. would they be to an information product, right? Um, and then, you know, from there it just sort of took off. It was pretty successful for unsurprising reasons. I mean, I wasn't looking to horn in on their turf at all. I was like, look here. <laughs> right, right. This information you can you can have it either uh, you know from use it from a reactive standpoint, meaning you know most law enforcement usually gets kicked off because of a tip, right? Mm. Somebody call and say and complain about somebody, you'd be amazed at the things that people end up calling about. Um, but you know, but you can also start getting a little more proactive and proactive. I don't, I don't want to give the wrong impression. Proactive makes it sound like. Um, you know, minority report or something creepy like that. <laughs> All I'm talking about is like much closer in time to catching the activity, right? right. Still, in fact, but you know, you're seeing patterns of activity, and you can, you know, now that we've been able to amass this information, um, you can you can run uh, holistic analyses over it for whatever outcome you're seeking to prevent or incent, right? Um, and it was very successful, right? I mean, I, 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 it was, I and I term success by meaning people were using, it, right? Like, right. Different offices were using it. The different the different agencies were using it. People felt people were really appreciative that we were making this information available, and we were making their lives easier in tracking down and enforcing the the the, the you know the integrity of the system, right? Hmm. So I felt that to me, I was like, you know, I declare victory, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, that's huge, yeah. Um, and that it turns out, unsurprisingly, that that nucleus of data can be pivoted to anything. Hmm. Right, like the think that if you think about what New York City collects as a, as a city government, it's the most granular stuff imaginable, right? Um, I mean, you got a million buildings, you got you know 4.5 million different units in those buildings, you, uh, you know the the, the the waste production, the hmm. school, all of it, right? And it's all digital, uh, it's all datafied, if you will, and hmm. you can use that for things well beyond regulatory enforcement and law enforcement, hmm. right? It's just that regulatory, like investigators and law enforcement, they're sort of like the original data scientists. They just don't think of themselves that way, um, sort of the same way I never thought of myself that way, right? Uh, I, I you know, like I said, you know, I was a history major in college, right? <laughs> like, I didn't, uh, I, I, my math facility is sort of embarrassingly bad, but it was more a matter of like, what can I do with this intelligence? What problems can I throw it at and, and improve? The outcomes, right? And um, so then, at the same time, I'm rambling here, and I'm sorry, but there was a fire. There was a series of fires in these buildings that had been illegally converted mm. um, in 2011, and um, the mayor was, you know, this is like typical in government, like, oh, well, Mike's got all that information. Why don't you deal with it, right? <laughs> and you know, I don't have a fire background, I mean, uh, mm. so 
I took a, I, I went about it the same way I went about all the other stuff. I went out in the field and talked to the people involved and was like, okay, when you go to a place that looks like it's a bad place that might go up, what does it, what right. does it look like, right? And then uh, I had a couple of kids that I had hired off of Craigslist deconstruct that in data, <laughs> right? Wow. And then we just kind of off of Microsoft Excel spreadsheets came up with a very basic algorithm um, that risk profiled every, every building in the city based on five years of uh, historical fire outcomes, right? And then we, we allocated our inspectors there. The way the inspectors used to go out, it was like a first-in, first-out system. You get a call, you respond to that call. What we started doing was say, okay, I'm not going to get in the way of that. I, you know, I'm not going to disrupt that. What I am going to do, however, is we're going to risk triage that list you get before you go out to do your inspections for that day based mm -hmm. on this algorithm, right? It's a very straightforward algorithm. Um, and we went from, like, there was like a, like a five-fold increase in the uncovering of really dangerous pyrogenic conditions, like, overnight. Like, it just, it was immediate, right? And it was tailored, in, I mean, I designed it on purpose so that it didn't change the front line day-to-day. Um, -day. It just changed where they went, right? Um, and so it was very easy to adopt. There was no user friction. Right, uh, and you know, they loved it, right? And I, and I was also exceedingly respectful of their time uh, and their experience because I kept over and over again kept we we kept validating again and again the algorithm against what they were telling us, right? Like, okay, in the first uh, couple of weeks, you know, there's you can imagine the melange of types of buildings that there are in New York, and so then this one category of buildings we were having you know, really bad results with. We weren't doing any better and, in fact, doing a little bit worse than what they had been doing for the first couple of cycles. So one of my kids went out with a with the inspector, and I give this kid a lot of credit. He, you know, he kept his, his uh, mouth shut and his ears open, um, which a lot of people don't do, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, he said, like, how, you know, the guy, they get out of the car with the inspector, and the inspector looks at the place, he's like, there's nothing wrong here. You're wasting, it's a waste of time, right? And my analyst basically said, how do you know that? And he said, look, man, they're, they're bricks. They're clean. Mm. This guy cares about his structure. Why are we here? <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, it's like, okay, that's, that's a good point. You're right, right that we should totally be taking it at now. What does that look like in data? And if you take a look, you can, you can see, you know, how uh, responsible a building owner is based on their permitting history. Right? And so we just grabbed the permits and then immediately saw a boost because we listened to that guy with all the experience, right? Nice. Um, and, you know, from there it just kind of took off. So I apologize. It's a very rambling opening. Well, this, I think this is, there's, there's a lot of information, so I, I do appreciate that. So I think um, uh, definitely I'll, I'll go over uh, your background. So tell me about your journey in, in Enigma, like what Enigma. So I think I, I read that uh, you are into... Uh, Operational data management and an intelligence company. So, what really that means uh, when it comes to Enigma, and then what's your role in that in in, in that group? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the the easiest way to put it is sort of it's you know there's a there's a more technological answer, and then there's a more um, operational answer, right? And so, I'm going to try and give both. Okay. I know that I'm like the worst elevator pitch guy that ever lived, right? <laughs> you know. um, essentially, it's just decision support, right? Okay. Decision support through data. So what does that mean? From a technological standpoint, Enigma's genesis was in uh, open data, was the collecting open source intelligence 
also known as open data, that's been increasingly uh, put out by governments at every level globally, right, over mm -hmm. the last five years or so. Uh, and, you know, Enigma got really good at taking those disparate pieces of information and curating them and making them uh, as usable as an, a decision support product unto itself, right? The most obvious example would be if you are uh, an entity that sells to governments, instead of scraping a million, you know, or, or several thousand different websites of government websites for contracts, you can have a unified API that has all those contracts, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's just that the government in uh, Indonesia and the government in the Philippines and the government in the state of Kentucky all use different ontologies for the word contract, right? Right. Uh, or the entity of contract, and and that so that requires an exceedingly nimble, source agnostic approach and technology to manage all that information. So then the company, sort of off of that nucleus of content, then started to get questions from clients like, "Well, can you help us with our own disparate data source problem?" And the reality is because we focus uh, very much mostly on large enterprises, those enterprises grew by acquisition. So there's no such thing as, you know, the IT system for American right. Express, right? It's like a system of systems, just like New York City, right? right. <laughs> just like anywhere right. else. These things grow and they have ontologies that match the mission statements of the units they serve that don't necessarily lend themselves to ready matching, right? Uh, and you know, it just turns out that not only were we able to turn open data at Enigma into a content product, a decision product just by content, but we were also able to use it to a certain degree as like a public parkour course to develop technologies that handle, that, that are in fact ontology agnostic and, you know, pegged to the needs of the questioner. So that the out, not the input, but the output respects the ontology requirements of the questioner, right? And because that ontology management is based off of a very dynamic bulk of intelligence, all that public data, that it's constantly reflective of the world, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, that data purports to reflect. So, you know, that, then that gets us to sort of the problem-solving bit. So on the one hand, you've got content that's available from open source intelligence being directly fed into, you know, more sophisticated end users for the most part, like... Um, you know, hedge funds, as you can imagine, right. uh, number of other actors. But then, from a tech, uh, from a business decision standpoint, if you're trying to optimize the allocation of your limited resources to get the biggest bang for your dollar, then there are all kinds of tweaks that you can make once you get your arms around your own information. So you have mm -hmm. to make that information liquid, and it has to be responsive to the needs of the individual askers, whether it be they tactical on the ground or strategic in management, right? And so that's what we do, right? Interesting. And and, and what's what's your typical role? So like, what does uh, a chief analytics officer in a product like a uh, company like Enigma means, really? So that's a, I think that's an excellent question. And, I, and when I you know, I have a, I have struggle answering it because oh. a chief analytics officer inside a large enterprise, oh. I know that I like I had that job. I know what's required of it, right? And it's really about information liberation, right? So that you can get information into the hands of people that can use it to do things better for the for the company, right? Mm -hmm. For the that's 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 what a CAO should be doing 
if they're a CAO at a Merck or uh, you know a Pfizer or wherever, right? That's that's their job. They also have other titles like chief data officer or whatever, but mostly that's what their job is, right? Um, or it should be anyway. At Enigma, it's more as the ultimate empath for such activity, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, so I, you know, my role because Enigma itself is exceedingly data sophisticated, of course, right? I mean, this is mm. what we do. Uh, you know, so so we don't have silo problems, right? Mm. What we do instead is try and help our clients figure out how to synthesize the cultural, legal, political, and technological challenges they face to bringing all of that information together and making it an enterprise asset, right? So a lot of the most of the, uh, you know half the time is just use casing, right? So I'll I'll be working with a client and kind of take a good long survey of the process they're seeking to optimize or the problem they're seeking to solve, and then I'll send, I'll basically think about okay how best could Enigma deploy its products in a way that gets you immediate return but also long term return, right? Interesting. Um, and you know so it's a fun job I get it. Right. I mean, you run around just solving problems. Uh, and you solve problems in a way that's sustainable and not in such a way that they have to keep coming back to you for consultant-style advice, if that makes any sense. Interesting. So how, how much of your job is like customer-facing versus in-facing? I'd say about 75, 25. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So I think one uh, one very fascinating thing that sort of uh, that I captured from your uh, your your sort of exp- your background is your extensive work with legal structure and making those like, capabilities stand out. And I, I think we, as a community, we, we spoke with uh, uh, FDNY and we, we also spoke with um, uh, Atlanta, like those city officials. And, and they, I think they're miles apart, right? So getting something done in a, in, in, in a very such a, in sort of very uh, regulated uh, body like government is, is, is a nightmare, right? So getting something off the ground and getting all the supports and getting all the blessings it will take forever. So, what are some of the some of your sort of key hacks or key findings that 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 you have sort of leveraged? And and considering that definitely New York is way ahead in their game, considering any other city because they should be. And uh, but but what are some of the things that you have faced and and sort of how you have come across uh, some of those those ro- uh, roadblocks, so as to speak, as as working with the government body and getting something radical across? Yeah, and it's an excellent question. Um, I mean, I think. The condition press. I I realized how lucky I was to be in New York because Mike Bloomberg was there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was just a, a fantastic manager, uh, very sophisticated. He hired very smart people. I'm not that sounds self-serving, but like most of my colleagues <laughs> is really what I'm referring to. But um, and then he he gave them a long leash to go mm-hmm. out and do good work, and he backed them up. He was always supportive, right? I mean, he was just he's the best manager I ever worked for, um, or best executive I ever worked for, and it's not even like close, right? Um, so from that, I would, and I've seen elsewhere where people who were far more talented than than me, right, um, fail spectacularly because they just had lousy managers. They had no right. executive support, right, or executive support that was really more, especially in the government space. Although this is true also in the private sector. Uh, executive support that really only goes so far as the press release and not thereafter, right? Because if you're doing analytics correctly, at least in my view, you are surfacing a lot of truths, be that that previously were not surfaced, and sometimes they're uncomfortable truths, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like this thing that we're doing is very ineffective and inefficient. Well, somebody owns that ineffective and inefficient thing that we're doing, right? And you're going to upset them. And you know, if if you don't have that executive support, then you will die a warning. You'll just all you'll do is you'll end up writing like a like a think tank report that nobody reads, right? And instead of actually making change happen, right, uh, based on the information. So that that's the first thing I think you absolutely must have. The second thing I think is I see people get tripped up when they're um, when they lose lose uh, lose sight of why they're doing it. Uh, I think people tend to fetishize data and fetishize technology uh, as an, as ends unto themselves. Um, and the reality is that the purpose of the fire departments of New York and Atlanta is not data and it's not technology. It's to secure the, the, the structures in the city and the people that live in those structures from dying in fire. Right? right. Yeah. So that's the outcome, man. You know? And right. so like, if you focus relentlessly on that and are wildly agnostic in mm. leveraging information and how you go about leveraging that information to further that mission, you're going to be okay, right? Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think it went where, where when I see people go off the rails, they go off the rails because they end up falling in love with the, with the quantitative piece of it, right, uh, to the detriment of the mission. Interesting. Uh, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's talk about um, data bridge. And I think I, I, you, you did briefly touch upon uh, in, in, in when you were dis describing your background. So what exactly is, like, was the N N NYC data bridge and, and the platform that, that you, you referred to? And how do you come about sort of creating? And I think it, it almost sounds like a center of excellence in, in, in many ways. So what, what exactly was it? And then how, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see putting, pulling this through? Yeah, I, um, so DataBridge was the original idea that I'd sketched out on a far napkin when I took the job in New York, right? <laughs> to enable all of that data to be shared freely. Basically, to, you know, New, the New York City's IT systems uh, are, you know, they're are just as siloed as New York City agencies, <laughs> right? right? So they'd just never been unified before. All I ever wanted to do was just grab copies on a mm. dynamic refresh and make them centrally, you know, s have them centrally available and then, you know, to me, for my analytics unit, but then also back out to the larger community, not just uh, externally, but internally. Like, I wanted the fire department to be able to get immediate access to building permits, right? And that's what we're talking about, because they really didn't before. Mm. Um, and I know that sounds crazy that they wouldn't, right? They yeah. would have to go through the city's web page at the Department of Buildings to get access to those permits, right, instead of getting an API that fed directly into their system. And, and think about how mission critical that is for the fire department, right? Like, when they, they have this this really cool system where as the trucks are going out, there's this screen in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the engine that basically shows everything that they, they would want to know about the structure they're about to run into, mm, right? That's true. Um, and so to be able to, to make data from a bunch of different agencies that speaks to that building structure or building condition, uh, liquid uh, and leverageable by those people is an amazing, great thing, right? So DataBridge was born really of a desire to nuke the firewalls between mm. agency intelligence 
while still respecting agency culture. And I think right. that's an important thing to remember. A lot of the times, in response to disasters or response to some phenomenon that ends up in the press or gets somebody upset, the, a government answer is usually some kind of task force, right, where they have, like, the big meeting and the commissioners sit around the table and they talk about how can we work together to solve this problem, and then, like, a month later, there's nothing out of it except maybe a report that nobody reads. Right, mm. and I know that sounds harsh, but I, I, you know, I spent 25 years in the public sector, and right. I saw it over and over and over again. Right, um, I didn't want that. Right, and 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 I think it would, frankly, it's you're, it's unfair to ask agencies that have entirely wildly different mission statements to coordinate amongst each other all the right. time. Yeah, what I'd rather have is that they're sharing intelligence, right, so that the fire department can leverage what the finance department knows without getting in the finance department's way and without causing the fire department to do differently in the field tactically what they're so good at doing, mm. right? That's leveraging information. That's liquid data, right? That doesn't get in the way of the agencies doing the jobs that they're set up to do. And for what it's worth, that exact same dynamic, I've seen it replicated in every client we have. Right. And we're able take information from other places like these, you know, company, the private sector. Private sector isn't any more functional than government. They're just less public about it, right? right. Um, so, you know, the government unfortunately has to be nauseatingly public with how dysfunctional it is. Um, but, you know, giant, giant organizations are just as dysfunctional, you know, for the most part. No, I think uh, you are absolutely right. So, one of, I think one of the interesting conversations that I recall from, uh, I think, way back in a bunch of friends in D.C., and how I think how they were sort of crying out loud on how agencies are not talking to each other and sort of they having a nightmare in getting any information which is like minuscule uh, in, in importance but just it's just they don't even think about it because it's it's a nightmare to pull that thing through. So because it's their job. Yeah. So if you're calling another agency for information, they're like, well, this doesn't really help me do my mission, so I don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm not saying that's the right attitude. What I am saying it is what it is. Right. right. And so if you can make data liquid, then it doesn't matter that they don't care. Right. It's just eminently transferable. And, uh, and you set up a structure that allows it to be transferred. That was, that was what DataBridge was designed to be. Is Interesting. That. Interesting. I don't anymore want to have to rely on the fact that I have a good friend who works at the Department of Buildings, and I can call her on Tuesday and get a spreadsheet sent to, sent to me by email because we're on good terms. Right, because she'll do and, that. And, and think, so, like from your from your DC days, right? So, what do you think? How far are we from uh, from sort of this liquefying data phenomena, right? I think because I think so. There, there are two school of thoughts that that are, that are very very evident. So, one is agencies not sharing information and it's costing them through the roof to doing the same research and again and again. And 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 the other school of thought is uh, I think one of the one of one of our our friend in um, in Milwaukee. Um, so they're saying that hey, we like we don't have fun to sort of fig figure out potholes and whatever. And then I said, why don't you, you sort of partner with local sort of insurance adjuster sort of companies and you share data with the, with those guys. They guys go and evaluate home all the time. What if if you just sort of create some kind of bridge uh, between between you two? So they are doing it. So you you guys give them some leverage or whatever, right? It's it's still very far. So how far like you think think that we are? Because New York is definitely a role model from even our conversation. Uh, New York and and Valley 
I think they, these guys are doing really nice job at sort of putting information out there so for people to chew and grasp and sort of extracting insights. But some of the laggards or some of the sort of the and even even federal for, for that matter, like what's what's your take on that? Like is, is is are we very far from sort of making making this sort of reality being in, seen in action, or, or or do you think that it's happening eventually? So I think there's been, I guess let. I think it's on the right side of history, right? I think we're going to get there, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, oh, <laughs> right? Uh, and you know, my I, I'm, I, I'd love to be wrong, believe me. But the, the reason <laughs> I love to be wrong, it sort of comes down to the nature of government. I mean, we we thankfully have a democratic system, uh, and you know, there's a lot of turnover, <laughs> right? Uh, electoral turnover, right? And the time those people aren't elected for technocratic managerial excellence, they're elected for policy uh, reasons that resonate with whatever the voter is thinking of that moment, right? Um, and I know that's sort of a, I, I'm not saying, well, it's democracy's fault. If we lived in like a Singapore, I could get this done, you know, and that's probably true. Thank God right. I don't live in Singapore, right? You know, so um, what I mean is that like, there's so much churn at the executive level in government, and um, that it, you know, it's going to be hard to have somebody come in and make it happen, right? Interesting. The, at the civil service level, those guys stick around forever, and right. for the most part, tend to be sort of almost indifferent as to who the electeds are. Um, that's certainly true at the local level. It's probably less true at the federal level, right? Uh, and you know, this somewhere in between with the states, I guess. But, uh, you know, I, th I think a, a sustained effort by executive leadership that seeks to empower the permanent parts of government, the non-political parts of government, to information share via some kind of combination of technological investment, and it doesn't have to be a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. That's the thing that sort of bothers me about this, is that, you know, you really don't have to spend a ton of money to get that done. I mean, think about how big New York City is, right? It's right. $80 billion a year budget. We're bigger by far than anybody in the country. Um, and Databridge costs $5 million, you know, which is, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but it's really not because mm -hmm. we leverage off-the-shelf options. I mean, it's. I want to make clear, Databridge is a Frankenstein monster. I build it the way I build it <laughs> because there were existing capacities that I could stitch together. Right. Nice. Yeah. Um, and that was the cheapest way to go. And so I felt, you know, like if I'm going to get a check cut from the Office of Management and Budget, I'm going to have to go as low as I can. And there's a lot of challenges with that. I think it's it's very clunky. It doesn't live up anywhere near to what the the, uh, the way I ideated it, but it's still a hell of a lot better than what was there uh, in terms of information sharing. Right. From at a, at a government level, generally, I think you need a technological investment to make you know to to actually start. Linking systems, um, just 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 in a raw sense. But you also need somebody like a chief analytics officer, like a chief data officer at, at at one of these agencies, who's going to stick their necks out and put that data to work and continuously show value to both elected officials and civil servants. Right. That there's a for this to exist. Right. I think if you don't do both, then it will then there's it just won't go forward. And that's why I think that's it's true. so rare is that it's really rare to find people who are willing to sink the capital into the idea wisely, not wastefully, right? Um, but that are also capable of not just saying, hey, we built this thing and now we're brilliant, <laughs> mm. right? 
um, but rather putting it to work constantly, iterating, making it resonate with all the stakeholders on a regular basis so that you're constantly showing value. Interesting. Right? Interesting. And then the last piece, by the way, is I think the other part of this, I, uh, they, my, I held the title Chief Open, Open Platform Officer towards the tail end of my tenure with the city in addition to the other titles I had. To tell you something about how much how much titles me, right? I had like four of them, uh, and uh, I didn't get a pay raise on any one of those. Things, no. But um, no, my view of, of that, my view of the open data piece of it was like, well, I'm just going to take DataBridge and make it public, right? Hmm. And and that way they won't be able to backslide if there's a change in election, <laughs> right? Right. Ah, that's interesting. But that's but think about that. New York City has a very very noisy, aggressive local press. That's true. That's not true in most places. That's true. So I could rely on the New York City journalistic community doing its job, which is to just be pains. Right. Right. Um, they do it well, and I have much respect for them. You know, um, to ensure that they that the the following administration, the Blasio administration, which was markedly mm. different ideologically right. from Mike Bloomberg didn't toss data out the window, wow. right? Um, and we did that in part by making everything we did nauseatingly transparent to the public. And I think, you know, that the fact that I could fall back on a press dynamic was a big deal. I don't think that's true in a lot of other cities because of the collapse of local press. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And so now, now let's let's spend a few minutes on, on, on Enigma clients, right? So you said 500, uh, 1,500 clients. And they are no different than government in many aspects. Right? The, the, the higher on, on the ladder you are, the more sort of uh, it's difficult for you to sort of uh, make the swift changes or whatever, right? So it, it's very difficult to get anything done. Um, so what are some of the challenges uh, that you see uh, in, your, in your Enigma vision, like or your Enigma sort of side of story of interacting with these businesses on how they are dealing with data and, and, and analytics problems? Like a couple of challenges there that you see. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, honestly, we've been incredibly lucky to get the clients we have. Um, I mean, you're always lucky to have a good client, right? But, like, right. in this, yeah. like, I just, I love this, this specific clients that we have because they don't think they know everything, but they also aren't willing to tolerate something that doesn't bring value. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and but they are also exceedingly eager. They see the promise and the potential in their own data in addition to the public data, right? So as a threshold matter, I just, you know, I'm, I think we're really lucky to get the, to have the clients we have. The problems solution arc is almost exactly the same as it was for me in New York City, right? Usually it starts out as a discrete decision problem that data science can be brought to bear on to assist, right? Mm -hmm. It could be, you know... I can't go too into it because we have privacy agreements with them, right. but, you know, and confidentiality agreements with them. But but, but it, they're very they're fairly discreet. Like we have this much lift, and we're throwing this much um, resources at it, and we're not getting enough return. How do I get better return on this specific thing, right? Um, and that honestly, that product is a very straightforward information product. Be mm -hmm. one of our one of our data scientists will take a look. We'll sit down, get to know the teams involved, and just come and basically give them a deliverable that tells them, you know, this is what you should be doing, right? But if you want to do it at scale, you're going to need a technology deployment, right? Interesting. Uh, 
And so then from there it just iterates and iterates and then all of a sudden you're deploying data liquidation, liquidification, I guess is a better term for it. Um, we have like a sort of an ETL tool called the ETL-like management tool called Parskit that is um, source agnostic. Um, and so that, that's your first step in data liquidity. But then there's also, we're really, really big into workflow optimization. Mm -hmm. And um, again, like the city, right? Like, let, let me take these vectors and send them to the right places without disturbing their workflow and without disturbing the IT infrastructure of the, uh, of the organization. It's the exact same thing we do at Enigma, right? Which is like, we start off with this problem, then we realize we want to scale because it had immediate benefit. Well, there's a technology piece of that. We're also going to make it slip seamlessly into your current workflow so it doesn't disrupt the organization. And the technology itself does not require any additional support resources than any other than any existing Fortune 500 company would already have, right? So they've already got the people on staff that can manage. You know, it's an open ecosystem. I, you know, Enigma's um, technology is exceedingly open and extensible. We don't. We actually have sort of the the. I don't know what the polar opposite of vendor lock-in is, but it's you know it's like <laughs> open, open jail cell, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we we play well with any system, and we encourage people to bring to bear whatever tools they've already got. We just make them easier to use because we make the data transfer more more readily. Interesting. Uh, and then you know there's a subject matter piece of this too, and this sort of gets me back hmm. to, uh, to regulation, right? And financial stuff. I feel like. Our work in compliance, especially, is is sort of closing the end of what can be a very virtuous cycle, right? If you think about public data, public data is by and large generated for the most part due to regulatory or statutory obligation, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Somebody is being told to produce this information for the purposes of compliance with some statute or some regulation. Right. Right. We'll do, and then we, you know, we take that content that's generated from that, but we also take the technology we developed off of how to manage that, and then deploy it back into a regulatory environment for a client. And now the client's workflow for regulatory compliance is is exceedingly optimized. The information is exceedingly on tap, and you're you're eliminating the drudgery that those compliance officers have to go through to get the information in one place so they can really bring their true expertise to bear on how to be the most compliant entity they can be. And, you know, to me, I, I, I love it because I have so much respect for uh, investigative and, and um, regulatory compliance personnel because I'm one of them. Right. And, Interesting. You know, these, these are people that, like, are really, really good at looking for outliers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then acting. All I want, all I want to do, is make their lives easier by making the information that gets to them liquid. So I think so. I think one thing definitely that fascinates me about your profile is your background. It's it's very unique. Typically, we see people jumping on on the analytics bandwagon from either from the business side uh, with extensive business background, or or they are statisticians and what and whatnot. You actually come up from from legal background. I think that's so. From your lens, like what are some of the things that that you see? which has benefited you because of your background, which you would have, or the industry wouldn't have seen otherwise, uh, if you have, if you can shed some light on that. Yeah. Um, well, as a threshold matter, you know, I think that being an attorney helped me a lot just because there's a logical rigor involved, um, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the big picture, right? 
Um, the law at the end of the day, a law exists or a regulation or a statute exists to remedy an evil. And so what you want is your outcomes to, you know, your outcomes should be, you know, should speak to that remedy, right? So you're constantly always tying together, well, what should we be doing to comply in spirit and in fact, you know, in letter with, with you know, they, that attitude of logical rigor has served me well. The right. other part of it is information interpretation, right? Um, so when you're when you're an investigator and when you're when you're a prosecutor, you are synthesizing a bunch of different sources of information, and for the discrete purpose of being able to present to a jury of your peers, um, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the person that has been charged did what we claim they did, right? Yeah. You're synthesizing you know, qualitative evidence, uh, quantitative evidence, physical evidence, um, spoken evidence, all kinds of circumstantial evidence, right? And circumstantial evidence gets a bad rap, but if you walk into a house with a wet umbrella and your clothes are wet, that's circumstantial evidence that it's raining outside, right? That's so, right. so, like, that kind of rigor, thought process has served me exceedingly well in, nice, in yeah. analytics, right? Because it's the same thing, it's the same concept except you're just doing it with, uh, in a more sophisticated, robust machine-like way. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I so, am, uh, no, I think that's... No, I'm sorry. No, 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 I think definitely very impressive, Mike, and I think we are almost at the, at the end of the, uh, our interview. So, love, love uh, your conversation. I think it, it's beautiful, and uh, I'm, I'm almost like, I've not even reached to half of the questions that I, I anticipated I'll ask. It was very informative. It was very good. Uh, I think uh, you raised some interesting point. And I think another interesting perspective was how analytics is done in government. And I think how sort of you sort of take your um, taking this, looking at the big picture concept and sort of uh, hacking this through uh, to becoming a successful on, um, uh, analytics executive from that matter. So I think definitely uh, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate that. I would love to have you over some in a couple of months to sort of go over the rest and sort of just go over what's going on. I think, and and uh, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm sorry uh, that you know I, I'm I'm uh, I'm a New Yorker, so I, I, I can't <laughs> shut up. Uh, so I apologize for that. But I'm more than happy to uh, to talk again. Awesome. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain